The children are dismissed for children's church right now. So if you are uh, up through, I think, grade four, you can go on out. Uh, you can find your teachers. You can line up in, in, in the hallway. The rest of us turn in your Bibles to John chapter 16. We're going to be working through John chapter 16, verses 16 through verse 33 today. We're going to finish up this section right before the high priestly prayer of Jesus. Now, in the midst of what we find, Jesus speaking, this is the last time uh, we call this section in Scripture the farewell discourse or the upper room discourse, some people would say. And it's the last time Jesus is actually going to speak to his disciples before he goes to the cross. And in the midst of him going to the cross, he, he is trying to comfort them. He is saying things to them that is, are, are meant to, you know, let not your hearts be troubled in John chapter 14. You know, believe in God, believe also in me. You know, he gives them a new commandment, which is really similar to an old commandment, to love one another and to, to care for each other. We also find that um, really what Jesus is doing is he's telling them these things. First, how they are to live in his absence. How they are to live, what they are supposed to do as the people of God. But then he also t tells them how he was to die. So not only does he say, this is how you're supposed to live, and I'm talking about really John 13, 14, 15, and 16, giving you a, a recap of it. So Jesus says, here's what I want you to do, how you are to live. And then he says, here's how I'm going to die. And then what he says is, in the midst of this farewell discourse, he goes, there are several relationships that you need to get straight. And let me explain what those relationships are. The first is this, is that you need to understand the relationship that you have with Jesus. So he's talking to his 11 disciples, because Judas at this point has now departed and is conspiring against him. And the 11 disciples, he says, you need to understand your relationship to me, that if you believe in me, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. You can only enter into a relationship, a restored, reconciled relationship with the Father through believing in me. And if you believe in me, if you believe in me, you will also obey me. You will, you will believe, you will obey, you will love me, and in the midst of that, there will be this fruit of joy that occurs. That's one relationship. He then talks about the relationship that um, he, we, the disciples are supposed to have with God, that God is the ultimate vine dresser in John chapter 15, that he will pick up, that he will discard, that he will prune, and that he will work everything for his own glory and for their benefit. And he says, do you believe this? So there's this relationship that Jesus is talking about between himself, the Father, but then he also says there's a relationship to the Holy Spirit that I want you to understand. That when I depart, I will leave you with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit will come and he will help you bear witness about me. The Holy Spirit will then allow you to see things more clearly. He will illuminate your mind so that you understand all that I have done for you. And in the midst of that, he will also be the comforter. He will comfort you and encourage you in times of trial. So Jesus is saying all of that. And then he also says this, like as it pertains to you guys, how are you guys supposed to deal with each other? So the relationships, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, how your relationship with the, with the Trinity is supposed to work itself out, but also what is your relationship like with one another? That you are to love one another, not to fight with one another, not to have discord with one another, not to sever relationships, but to love and to serve one another. And then he talks about this. He talks about, let me talk about the relationship that you as believers in me, 
united to God through faith in Jesus, empowered by the Holy Spirit, you will also have a struggle in this world. The relationship that you will have with the world will be one of tribulation and difficulty and discord. You will not live in harmony with this world. So again, the relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the relationship between one another, and the relationship that he has with the world. I mean, he's kind of, I mean, quite frankly, he's dumping a lot on the disciples right now. And he's giving them a whole lot. And he does this to encourage them because he knows that he's about to go on a trip. And it's going to be a wild ride. It's going to be a wild ride for Jesus, and it's going to be a wild ride for the disciples for the next few days. So, having said all of that by way of introduction, let's read the Word of God from John chapter 16, beginning in verse 16. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me? And again, a little while, and you will see me? And because I am going to the Father? So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. And Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves, what I meant by saying a little while, and you will not see me? And again, a little while, and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full. I have said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, for the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and have come into the world, and now I am leaving the world and going to the Father. And his disciples said, Ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. Now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why we believe that you are coming from God. And Jesus answered them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And we all say, The grass withers and the flower falls but the word of the Lord remains forever. I'm going to ask you to pray with me as we open up the text. Father, as we open up John chapter 16, I pray, Lord, that you would bring about clarity where there might be confusion. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would increase our joy as we think about the the triumph of the cross. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would bring about peace to our souls, a deep peace, that comes from only knowing Jesus. Father, would you help me to be clear? Would you help those who are listening 
to be attentive with their hearts and their minds. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I want to break this up in in three different sections here today. Um, And really, I frame it in this way. Uh, Seven different times in John chapter 16, verses uh, 16 through 19, there's this term called a little while. A little while, and this is going to happen. So in a little while. So in a little while, Jesus will bring um, understanding out of perplexity. In a little while, Jesus will bring clarity out of confusion. And in a little while, Jesus will also bring joy out of sorrow. And in a little while, Jesus will bring peace through triumph. Now, the idea of clarity out of confusion. I mean, you you get this, right? Like in John chapter 16, the disciples are totally baffled right now. But, But give them at least a little bit of the benefit of the doubt because they do not have the Holy Spirit yet. Holy Spirit has not been given to them. They do not yet understand all that is going on. And what we find in this is that they're confused. And there's confusion about what this means a little while, and you will see me no longer. And they're looking around going, a little while? A little while? I mean, it's, it's almost to the point of redundancy uh, where it says seven different times in John chapter 16, like in a little bit, in a little, like I don't get it. Like, where's he going? What's he going to do? Why is this all going to happen? And we find that what Jesus is saying is that we want you to understand that when I leave, the Holy Spirit will come and he will begin to bring understanding and clarity. Again, Jesus knew what they wanted to ask him. So he said to them in verse 19, is this what you are asking yourselves what I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me? And again, a little while, and you will see me? Now, in, in the midst of this, I think what, what Jesus is saying to them is, is he's saying that my hour has now come. We see this later on in this section. And up until this particular time, when somebody says, is your hour come? Like, think about when um, Jesus does his first miracle in John chapter 2. It's the wedding feast of Cana. And at the turning of the water into wine, he actually tells his mother, "Uh, woman, my hour has not yet come. What does this have to do with me? And so he's saying, my hour has not yet come. The hour that he's talking about is the hour when he would begin to reconcile all things to the Father in heaven on the cross. And what he's saying here is like, you guys don't understand what it means that in a little while, we're about to go through a very difficult, dangerous journey. And but what he says in the midst of this, he goes, I want you to have confidence in your father. When you, when you think about um, verse 23, it says, in that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the father in my name, he will give it to you. There will be a time when I depart and I will no longer be with you, but that you will be indwelt by Holy Spirit You'll be indwelt by the Holy Spirit in such a way that now you are reconciled to the Father and that you will actually have confidence in the Father's plans. But up until now, you don't get it. Now, what I find that is, you know, pretty miraculous, actually, and fairly um, staggering is after this long discourse from verses 16 down through 28, his disciples said, ah, now you are speaking plainly and not using figurative speech. And I don't understand that at all. I'm like, because at this point, I think that they're still really, really confused. 
Have you ever been in a classroom and you know, especially in math, you know, I mean, as you get into higher level of math, you know, you, you have a problem that is given to you by the, by the professor, and you work through the problem. He works through it on the board. He tells you what it is, and then you, he looks at you and he goes, do you understand now? And at some point, you, you get tired of telling him no. So at this point, you lie to him and say, uh-huh, yeah, I follow you. I follow you. I'm going to follow you right outside, so I'm never going to have to take another math course again. Let me just kind of get through this math course so that then I can kind of move on. I was there in college. I remember uh, I did really well in my first calculus class, and then that Calc 2 analytic geometry, uh, Mr. Zimajewiski, should have been a key to me that I wasn't going to understand what he was saying, but it did not go well for me. You know, I decided at that point I was not going to be a math major, and as much as I tried, it was not going to happen for me. Now, in the same way, I think the disciples are still trying to figure this out, and, and they say, now we know that all things, and now we know that you know all things and do not need anyone to question you. This is why I believe that you came from God. And Jesus says in verse 31, I think there's this almost this, like, do you now believe? Like, this is the moment that you believe? You're like, I walked on water. I raised Lazarus. I mean, I've done all these miracles. I mean, everything that we read in, John, in Isaiah chapter 42 about, you know, the lame um, uh, dancing, the blind seeing, the, the deaf hearing, everything that's been prophesied about me, now you believe? Now you believe? And yet, one of the things that happens is that it says in, in John chapter 16, verse 25, I've, I've said these things to you in figures of speech. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. So there's this idea that there is this hour coming, and this hour comes when, when Jesus reconciles sinful man with the Father imparts the Holy Spirit to us, and now we understand. And out of confusion, there is now clarity. But in the midst of this, the, the application for us today is, I mean, I don't know about you guys, but like sometimes I open my Bible and, and I'm a little bit lost because I don't understand what it's trying to say to me. Anybody have that problem? I mean, the people who aren't, aren't reading their Bibles, okay? If you're reading your Bible, there are going to be times when when there's confusion, and one of the things that we do in the midst of confusion is we run to the Father. Now, why do we run to the Father? Because our good, good Father wants to give His children good gifts. He wants to explain to us how to live and how to think and, and reveals his, his will to us. So, the application is, is that you know, I've said these things. The hour is coming when I will no longer speak to you in figures of speech, but will tell you plainly about the Father. In that day, you will ask in my name, and I do not say to you that I will ask the Father on your behalf, meaning that because you are clothed with the righteousness of Christ, because you are in Christ, you don't have to go through an intermediary, but rather you get to go right to the Father, for the Father himself loves you. In verse 27, for the Father himself loves you, meaning that you have access to the throne of grace because you are in Christ. And so in moments of complexity, in moments of confusion, we are called to run to our Father. I mean, some, some of you remember that movie, It's a Wonderful Life. Now it's you know, September, so we're not quite there yet, although maybe there's some cable channels running that movie in a perpetual loop right now, just like there are some stores that already have Christmas decorations out, right? 
But there's this scene in the movie where you know, George Bailey can't figure out what to do because he has this poison from old man Gower. And he says, oh, ask dad. He'll tell you. So he runs in to a meeting with, you know, with Potter and, and you know, his dad, uh, you know, Peter Bailey. And he says, dad, dad, what do I do? In the same way that we're called to run to our father and ask for clarity in the midst of confusion. When you get to a portion of scripture that you don't understand, do we pray that God would illuminate our minds and hearts to help us understand? Are we doing that? Are we running to the Father? In the midst of not just the Bible, but think about your life. I mean, some of you have difficult decisions to make. You, you have difficult decisions. If you're a student, you're thinking about what college do I go to? If you're in college, you're thinking about where do I live? What job will I have? You know, what spouse will I pursue? What um, state will I live in? Will I have children or not children? I mean, how do I take care of aging parents? You know, how do, I, how do I honor the, I mean, all of these questions are confusing. I mean, they're, they're big questions. And are we taking our big, complex, massive issues, are we running to our father who says, come to me and ask, and I'm a good father, and I will give you clarity. I will give you an answer. I will bring peace to your soul in the midst of the complexities of life. You see, Jesus brings clarity out of confusion. How does he do that? By imparting to us the Holy Spirit, and then directing us to the Father. Now, secondly, what we find in this section of Scripture is that Jesus, in a little while, Jesus will bring joy out of sorrow. You see, the cross was the cause of their sorrow, or would be the cause of their sorrow. And out of this anguish and sorrow, think about this, out of this anguish and sorrow that the disciples would have when Jesus is crucified, from it will flow blessings and joy. Now, we, we see this in verse 20. He says, truly, truly, and again, those, when he says, amen, amen, in the Greek, truly, truly, I say to you. Anytime he says truly, truly, he's foot stomping something, saying this is important. I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful. Now, think about this. In the midst of the cross of Jesus, everybody who was against Jesus thought they won. Everybody who wanted him up on the cross, all the Pharisees, all the Sadducees, all the Sanhedrin, you know, Pontius Pilate, you know, everybody there was like, Jesus is now up there, and we are rejoicing that we have taken this one who is an insurrectionist, and we have now dealt with him. And in the midst of Jesus being up on the cross, you know, this, this tragic, I mean, terrible death, I mean, we often think of the cross being that high. I mean, most commentators and most people would say the cross was only about 12 inches off the ground. So you could get almost nose to nose with the people who are being crucified. You're not distant from them, you're close to them. And so the, the disciples, who again, all of their hope was upon him. As a matter of fact, in, in the, um, later on in, in the Gospel of Luke, when it talks about on the road to Emmaus, when Jesus in, in, is, is shrouded and he's walking with the disciples, and the disciples reveal to him, we thought he was the one who would actually bring about uh, the hope that we have. We thought he was the Messiah. So their hopes had been dashed. And you guys know this, right? Like when your hopes are dashed, you're sad. When there's rejection, and when the world is rejoicing at the rejection you have, there's deep sadness. There's deep sadness and lamentation. Because at this point, the disciples had banked that Jesus was the one who would reconcile 
all things to God. But the problem is, <laughs> is that there's great sorrow. But, but look at what happens in verse 20. It says, you will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. It doesn't mean that it, you know, there's joy that replaces it, but rather the very thing that you think is the most miserable thing in your life, the, the, the harshest death anyone's ever died, that harsh death will be the means by which man and God are reconciled together. And that will bring you joy. Now, that term joy is something that is deep within our souls. Even in verse um, 24, it says that your joy may be full. Again, in, in John chapter 15, Jesus talks about obeying his commandments so that your joy might be full. Now, there is a difference, brothers and sisters, between joy and happiness. You see, happiness Although sometimes it's, it's equated with joy, it's not the same thing, because happiness is based upon our happenings, what happens to you. That is what brings us happiness, and happiness is fleeting. It will come and it will go. There is also this idea of pleasure, you know, that we think that pleasure is momentary. You know, biblical joy is not the same thing as happiness, Christian joy is different than pleasure. It comes, a pleasure comes from self-indulgence, and then it pays diminishing returns. Desperately seeking pleasure um, is what the Western, uh, the, um, the philosopher Alexander Solzhenitsyn said this, the Western world is on a pleasure-seeking mania, as he came over from Eastern Europe and Russia. You see, Christian joy is rooted in God, and in particular, what Jesus has done on your behalf. There's this, this prospect that our joy, the fullness of joy that we have, will come from our relationship to Jesus. And if you are in Christ, then you are promised joy. Now, there will be times of happiness and there'll be times of great pleasure. Matter of fact, in, in the Psalms, Psalm chapter 16, verse 11 says, at his right hands are pleasures forevermore. But we have to remind ourselves that it's at God's right hand, not at the broken cisterns or the, the false husks of this world will we find happiness and pleasure that are lasting and eternal. They're a poor substitute for joy. You see, joy is something that we have deep within us. As a matter of fact, it's, it's, um, it's this idea that despite the circumstances, despite what is you know, raging around us, there's this peace and this joy that we have. It's, it's likened to this. Um, right now out in the Atlantic, you, you'll see hurricane season, right? and you'll see all these pathways for hurricanes. And, and now that we live in Kansas, we don't think about hurricanes nearly as much. We think about tornadoes. We think about other things. We think about how hot it is, how cold it is. But we don't think about hurricanes. But when you're out on, in the Atlantic Ocean and the hurricanes are raging, there is a point where if you are on the surface of the water with the raging winds of a, a Cat 5 storm at 160 miles per hour and the wind and the rain and everything, there is great tumult and great turmoil that is going on. Like you don't want to be on the surface of the ocean in a boat there. But if you were to go down within the water, thousands of meters below the surface of the water, 
there's calm. There's a calm. Regardless that there's a Cat 5 storm up above, the depths of the Atlantic Ocean are so deep that there's calm below the storm. That is the joy that comes by being in Christ. Regardless of what is going on around you and how difficult and how trying and some of the relational discords that are going on, there is a joy that we have that says, I'm in Christ. Again, I, I've used this before um, as an illustration, but I had, a, had an older guy who actually grew up in Oklahoma named Bob. And Bob would often tell me in the midst of difficulties in the church uh, and relational discord and, you know, I don't know if you guys know this or not, but if you're in the church long enough, somebody's going to let you down. I don't know if you've experienced that yet. If you haven't, praise the Lord. But in the midst of this, in the midst of being around other people, people are going to let you down. There's going to be relational discord. There's going to be difficulty. And I remember my friend Bob would always tell me this, regardless of how difficult the situation was, he would look at me and goes, and I, would, and I would explain the situation. I was like, well, Bob, this person and this person, this is what we have going on. It's really difficult. I don't know what to do. And I just, ah, and I'm just overwhelmed. And he would look at me and he would, he, sometimes he'd put his hand on my shoulder and he'd go, but we still get to go to heaven, right? I'm like, well, yeah, we still get to go to heaven. And he goes, then it's all good. <laughs> and what he's trying to get me to understand is that there's a joy and there's a confidence, and there's a security that is deep within us if we are hidden in Christ. Uh, Leon Morris, uh, the commentator, talks about it in this way. There's a painting of the, um, of the storm. This, this, this ship is being shipwrecked against the stones, against this rock in the middle of the sea. And as this ship is you know, up against this rock and it's being torn apart, you can see that people are falling into the ocean. It's, it's a portrait. These people are falling into the ocean and that it, it looks like it's a dire situation in the midst of the storm. But in the middle of that huge rock, there's a, there's a crack that runs right down through this crack, this crack in this rock. And in that crack is a dove in a nest asleep in the midst of that storm. And what he's describing is this peace, this joy that comes from being in Christ. Now, there's this other, let me go back, I'm, I'm jumping ahead of myself here. This idea of Jesus will bring joy out of sorrow. He uses this illustration. He uses the illustration of a woman in labor. So in verse 21, he says, when a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. And I'm not really sure that's true. Most of the women I know are really, really excited uh, that their hour has come and they actually get to have the baby. But what we find here is he says that their hour has come, but when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, this theme that we see runs through this idea of the pangs of birth, specifically uh, in Micah chapter 4, verses 9 and 10. It's this, it's, it's this, this image of women in childbirth, um, this anguish. We see this anguish comes and then joy comes after. In Micah chapter 4, verses 9 and 10, it says this, Now why do you cry aloud? Is there no king in you? Ha has your counselor perished that pain seized you like a woman in labor? Writhe and groan, O daughter of Zion, like a woman in labor, for now you shall go out from the city and dwell in the open country. You shall go to Babylon. There you shall be rescued. There the Lord will redeem you from the hand of your enemies. 
Now, in a similar way, he's saying, out of great anguish, your joy will turn, your sorrow will turn into joy because out of this great anguish, the cross is like that. That's what the cross is like. There's great anguish. There's great writhing. There's the great groaning. All of that occurs on the cross at the death of Jesus on our behalf. But it is the very means by which man is reconciled to God. There is no other way where the justice of God and the love of God meet except on the cross of Jesus. Now, you see this. I mean, we get to experience this at times. I mean, even in, in the midst of um, our own life, you know, having a, a grandson now, we were able to be, you know, in the hospital, you know, a few hours after he was born. And I know that the labor was really, really hard on my daughter-in-law, Ryan. And, and yet, when you walk into the room of this little baby boy, you have like a permanent smile on your face. And all of the anguish, all of, the, fr- all of the, the issues of pain and suffering, there's just joy that comes from seeing this new life. You see this. There's like this permanent smile as everyone walks in and sees that baby. There's great joy that occurs. Now, in, in the midst of this, we see that, that Jesus promises this that you have sorrow now, but in verse 22, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. You see, the the joy that Jesus imparts to us is something that cannot be taken away by man. We see that in in the book of martyrs. We see that in the history of the church is that the authorities, those people who do not believe in Jesus, they will do everything they can to steal the joy of the people of God. But Jesus says the joy that you have that is for you in Christ will not depart from you. One of the um, saddest people that you will ever meet is someone um, who is a Christian who, in the midst of their life, they have wandered away from the Lord for a time, and they are seeking happiness and pleasure in the world. because they know that there is lasting joy found in Christ, but they are seeking the things of the world to bring some sort of sustaining happiness or pleasure in their life. And they are a sad person. They cannot be satisfied. They cannot be satisfied by the world because the world will always disappoint. Now, the other um, thought in in the midst of this is, I want you to think about this. I heard this from a a pastor named Eric Alexander. He calls this, he goes, joy comes out of sorrow. Joy comes out of sorrow and life comes out of death. Without real blood being shed and difficulty, the anguish some have borne for your sake, there is some pain that is productive. And he says this, he says, sometimes the pains that we have in our life are the birth pangs of being reconciled to God in Christ. Meaning that sometimes the Lord will use difficulty to bring you to Him. I want you to think about that. The difficulty that you're in right now, the the complexity of the situation, the discord 
or the disharmony that you have in the relationships you have, the Lord, if you are in Christ, will use those things to draw you to Himself. Because joy comes after sorrow. Now, there's, in a little while, we also see this, and this is one of the most famous verses in all of this chapter. This is verse 33, which says, I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Jesus says, I have overcome the world. He goes, you know, I actually, in Hebrews chapter 12, he actually says, I actually go to the cross for the joy set before me. So think about that. Jesus goes to the cross in uh, Hebrews chapter 12 because of the joy set before him so that he could reconcile a, a sinful man with a holy God. And then he says, in the midst of this, I bring you peace. I will overcome the world. By going to the cross, he paid the penalty for sin. By the resurrection, he conquered sin and death on our behalf. And by being raised in his ascension to the right hand of God, the Father Almighty, we see that he is rightly restored to his place. You see, in the the midst of this, there is triumph. There's a triumph that occurs at the cross. But in this world, until Jesus comes again, you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. When he says, but take heart, he's saying, take courage. We see that over and over again. And why do we see it over and over again? Because we are constantly discouraged in this life. But take heart. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. And think about the tribulation that is about to occur. The tribulation that is about to occur for the disciples. I mean, they are going to be scattered You know, he even says that in verse 32, Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. So not only will you be scattered, not only will your hopes be dashed, but now you will have to deal with the shame of actually departing from me, so that when I come back, there's still a little bit of shame, like, is Jesus going to restore us? There's shame in the midst of the, 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 you know, the disciples. There's, there's anguish. There's frustration. There's fear. All of these things are wrapped up and doing a dance in their stomach. And Jesus says to them, I'm writing these things to you. I've said these things to you that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Now, what do you do um, when you think about this? I, I think, I think um, when you realize that maybe there's this loneliness that you experience. And I know many of you in different circumstances, different venues feel a loneliness, such as uh, maybe students feel this way, like, but I'm the only Christian in my class. How do I witness for Jesus? Or how do I stand up for my faith when I'm the only Christian in my class, or I'm the only Christian in my office, or maybe I'm the only Christian in my family. Are you going to remain faithful in these circumstances? Do you really believe that the only joy found in the universe will be found in Jesus and not pursue some false substitute? You know, the, the idea about discipleship, 
Discipleship, and let me quote um, a commentator, Gary Burge, he says, discipleship is about learning how to discover peace when surrounded by threat, how to possess tranquility despite those hostile to your faith. The solution Jesus gives is courage, courage that is found in Christ, courage that is found within his word, courage that is found amongst the brothers and sisters of the church. We need that desperately in our life. How do we stand up? Now, there's a, there's a, 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 um, a little story. I'll, I'll conclude with this. In 2 Kings, go to 2 Kings chapter 6. There's this little story that we read about a Syrian king called Ben-Hadad. Now, Ben-Hadad... Um, I don't want you to see this story. So 2 Kings chapter 6 is you got Elisha. And Elisha is the great prophet. He follows Elijah. And Ben-Hadad, who's the king of Syria, and he's getting really, really frustrated because he has a mighty army. But every time his mighty army goes to this place, the people of Israel already know what's going on. So it looks like there's a traitor in the midst of the camp of the king, right? that there's somebody who's spying out what's going on, but it's not, it's actually Elisha, because from the word of the Lord, he actually gets, um, he actually receives uh, this prophecy that Ben-Hadad is going here, so this is where you need to go. So there's not a traitor in his midst, but rather there's a prophet. So the people go and they say, hey, Ben-Hadad, it's not because we have a traitor in our midst, it's because Elisha, the prophet of God, is saying things to the, to the armies around you, and you are being thwarted because Elisha um, is against you. And so Ben-Hadad goes, well, I know what we got to do. If I'm being thwarted by one man and I've got a mighty army, all I got to do is dispatch one man. Let me get rid of this guy. I'm going to kill Elisha. That's what I'm going to do. That's what he sets out to do in, in 2 Kings chapter 6. In verse 11, it says, And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who is of us, who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, behold, he is in Dothan. So he went there, so he sent their horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. Now, this is what I'm talking about. Peace in the midst of tribulation, all right? When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, and behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city, and the servant said, alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O oh Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayers of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way and this is not the city, follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. And think about that. Elisha was demonstrating peace in the midst of tribulation. Why? Because he trusted and believed in the providential hand of God. Now his servant, his servant, I feel like, in this story, I play the part of the servant here, okay? 
Because often I am fearful or anxious about what God will do. How is he going to fix this? What's going to happen? And what's beautiful here is Elisha says, Lord, would you please open his eyes that he may see? Essentially, would he understand that I own a cattle on a thousand hills? My righteous right arm is extended for you. Again, how was the righteous right arm extended for us by God? The greatest way is when we think about the cross. How, is, how does God vanquish our, all of his and our enemies as our great king? He does it on the cross. And what we celebrate is we celebrate the sacrifice of Jesus on our behalf. You see, this bread represents his body given for you. This cup represents the new covenant in his blood shed for you so that you might be forgiven. Again, in Hebrews chapter 12, it says, for the joy set before him, for the joy set before him. Now, how could Jesus be joyous about going to an anguishing cross, you know, a terrible death? He could have joy knowing that lost sinners might be found in Christ and be reconciled to God the Father. That's the beauty of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians, we read the, the words of institution from the Apostle Paul. For he says, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, This bread will always remain bread, and this juice will always remain juice. But Father, you feed us spiritually. You pour out grace upon grace. Father, just as you poured out grace and joy and reconciling peace through the cross, Father, I pray, Lord, that we would know Jesus. And that, Father, as we come, Father, that we would would come with, with expectant hearts, knowing that all things come from you. And Father, I pray, Lord, that as we come, Father, that you would turn our sorrow into joy. That, Father, that you would bring um, clarity to our confusion. And Father, I pray, Lord, that you would bring peace in the midst of tribulation. Father, would you help us? We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.